the truth of God will, in the end, turn about to bring you glory. Because, Lord, you are in the heaven, and you do whatever you desire to do. And we are so very thankful for that. Open now our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your law, we pray, in the wonderful name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. So while your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. That cryptic statement comes out of an Old Testament parable found in the story of King Ben-Hadad, who was the ruler of Aram. As he came to besiege the capital city of Samaria, the capital of Israel, where King Ahab ruled the land. Ben-Hadad sent a message to King Ahab in the siege. Your silver and gold are mine. The best of your wives and the best of your children are mine. And mousy Ahab sent back this reply. Just as you say, my lord, I and all I have are yours. But that wasn't enough. Ben-Hadad wanted more, so he sent a second message. Tomorrow I'm going to send my officials to come and search the homes of every one of your nobles and search the pallage and take whatever is of value to you. And at this, Ahab, in consultation with the elders, said, we cannot comply. So Ben-Hadad vowed this oath May the gods do to me and more so if by this time tomorrow Samaria is not reduced to dust. But then the prophet of God stepped in. He said to King Ahab, this is what the Lord says. Don't worry about the king. Do you see this vast army surrounding the city? I will give it into your hand today and then you will know that I am the Lord. So while Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings allied with, aligned, or allied with him were in their tents getting drunk, Israel had a surprise attack and won a great victory. Ben-Hadad escaped. The prophet said they're going to come back next spring and try to do the same thing, so be ready. And when they do, I will give that vast army into your hands so that you will know that I, am the Lord. Ahab had forgotten that. Sure enough, they came back in the spring. They were defeated with even a greater victory this time. Israel wins because God is on their side. Ben-Hadad surrenders. He sues for peace. And Ahab gives it to him. Now, he had been commanded by God to eliminate the king, but instead, he gives him a treaty of peace. Now, this is where it gets interesting. <laughs> the prophet goes to someone and says, wound me, strike me, and finally, he finds someone willing to do it, and then he goes by the side of the road, the prophet, 
as a man wounded in battle, waiting for the king to come by. And when the king comes by, he's got his headband over his face so the king doesn't know it's the prophet. And as the king comes by, he calls to the king and says, Your servant went into the thick of battle, and someone came to me with a captive and said, Guard this man. If he is missing, it will be your life for his life, or you must pay a talent of silver. And now here is our quote that we began with. While your servant was busy here and there, the man disappeared. King Ahab said, that is your sentence. You have pronounced it yourself. And then the prophet quickly took the headband off of his face so that the king knew that he was the prophet. And the prophet said to the king, this is what the Lord says. You have set free a man I determined should die. Therefore, your life for his and your people for his. And God's message to Ahab was, you lost your life when you gave back Ben-Hadad's life to him. When you kept a captive and didn't follow my word. Now that's the parable. It sounds much like the parable that Nathan gave to David after his sin with Bathsheba when he told him about the man with many sheep and the one who only had one. Or like the parables that Jesus would tell in the New Testament. Like the parable of the prodigal son. Actually, two sons are in the story, and it was aimed at the self-righteous Pharisees. But there's a lesson in those parables for us all. Just as there's a lesson for, this, for us in this particular parable. Now, I'm guessing the soldier of the parable had good intentions. I imagine he was determined to be diligent, maybe even honored by the request to watch such an important prisoner. And perhaps he began his vigil with all attentiveness, but something happened. He became preoccupied. He was distracted. And this important prisoner that had been captured by the blood of many and the lives of some was now nowhere to be found. And the guilty guardsman sits in shame as he's being interviewed by the king. Now, a couple things to recognize in this parable. First of all, he was given a responsibility, and it came from someone in authority, someone over the soldier. And, of course, every soldier is under the king. It was a command with authority behind it. Secondly, this charge held high kingdom value. If their country was going to be saved from the invading enemy, then everyone needed to do their job. And every prisoner captured must be held. And thirdly, this responsibility came with some serious warnings that he should have followed. Now, I think the lesson for us in all of this parable is found more in the failure 
that follows. The fact that he did not retain the prisoner as commanded. It might be helpful to remind ourselves that he didn't fail because of ignorance. He knew exactly what to do. He understood, understood perfectly what the king, what the ruler, the general, whoever it was, had told him to do. His life depended upon it, and yet he still failed miserably to his own ruin. He didn't fail because of ignorance. He didn't fail because of helplessness, inability. Now, had I been him, I would have stood by the road and said, look at these wounds. I couldn't keep the guy, but he doesn't blame the wounds at all. Had he been overcome by a superior power, if the enemy had come at night with great force and taken the valuable prisoner away, we, we would have had some sympathy for the guy, but that's not it at all. He wasn't helpless. You know, it's interesting when we're given a charge by God, when we're giving, given a duty to keep, he gives us the ability to accomplish the task. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts will be enlightened. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? The eyes of your heart. I pray that they will be able to see the hope of your calling and the glorious riches of God's inheritance. And the amazing power that works in you who believe. When God calls us to do something, he gives us the power to accomplish the doing of it. And so we cannot plead ignorance because we don't know his command. And we cannot plead helplessness because he gives us all power to accomplish his will. How did this happen then? If he wasn't overcome by a superior power, if he wasn't somehow helpless, how did it happen? Here in his own words, he said, well, I was just too busy here and there. And the man escaped. It was due to the fact that he was too busy. Too busy. He wasn't lazy, he was occupied. He wasn't in idleness. He was very industrious. And yet it appears that whatever he was doing was not the right job. Many people in the church of Jesus Christ could say, I indeed am active and busy. I've got many jobs to fulfill, many engagements to to keep, many programs to start, burdens to carry. I, I'm filled with responsibility, and I am active. But active doing what? Is your task more important than your life? You might say to this guy standing by the side of the road, is it more important than the honor of your country? Is it more important than the order of your superior? I was just doing active, busy here and there. Doing common things. Maybe harmless things. 
but not significant things. It was not only due to busyness. I think it was due to carelessness. He failed at his job. You might say it was mistaken priorities. You might say it was selfishness. But he was careless with the call that had come upon him from his Lord. And committed himself, occupied his time with other things. You might say, well, you know, his crime is not that bad. I mean, he just wasn't attentive, that's all. And it's true that it wasn't some aggressive crime like stabbing someone in the back or stealing your neighbor's wife, some great crime that would get you in the news and, and all would agree you're guilty. But what you have to understand that in the Bible, when we're talking about obeying God, and when we don't obey God, or a command from our Lord, there is the sin of commission, and there is the sin of omission. Commission is doing what you shouldn't do. Omission is not doing what you should. And this is a sin of omission. He's being punished for what he had done. Not for what he had done, but rather for what he didn't do. Sin of omission. And my greatest fear for Bible-believing churches, whether you're here worshiping today or listening online, my greatest fear for those who are involved in evangelical Bible-believing churches is not that we're going to commit some wild, horrible crime. It's that we're going to commit the grievous sin of omission. Simply not following our Lord's command. We're foolish when we think that we're good simply for doing no great wrong. That righteousness is one-sided. And if I don't do the bad things, then I must be the good soul. But God says no. To know what you should do and to do it not, to you it is sin. So the Bible tells us that as we go through this parable, parables usually have a main point, and the point usually focuses on our soul, and the point is simply this. We often sin even though we're active, by not doing what God has called us to do. Mistaken priorities. It's where we allow the secondary concerns of life to replace the primary concerns of life. And we fill our life up with the non-essentials. We're active and busy, but to what goal and to what purpose? Have you ever had someone ask you, what are you doing? You say, I'm just puttering around. I'm just wasting time until. <laughs> Phrases that really reflect a, a deep flaw in our souls. Now, those are expressions of speech, and, and we get it. But in reality, that's what we often fill our lives with, puttering around and wasting time in a job that carries little significance. 
It's a true story that comes out of England that a man, kind of like a butler in a Downton Abbey setting, had the job of standing at the bottom of the stairway. He stood there and appeared to do nothing. Someone questioned him and said, well, what is your job? My job is to stand here. Why? Because I was told to do so. So they did a little investigation and they found out that five years ago, someone had varnished the rail on the stairways and they put a butler there to warn the lords of the manor that the rail was wet. The paint dried up, but the job didn't. And no one knew why he was standing there, but he was just standing there. Why do we do what we do? Well, it's just a pattern of life, and we've forgotten the why. We're just occupied with the job. Pastor Doug read for us a moment ago from a great New Testament story that says the very same thing. You can turn in your Bibles to Luke's Gospel, chapter 10. It's the story of Mary and Martha. So Jesus and his disciples are going through the town just south of Jerusalem. This is where Mary and Martha live with their brother Lazarus. And I don't know uh, all the background to it. I don't know how many people were with him, but you guessed maybe the 12. And so Martha does what she is supposed to do, what every Jew is commanded to do, and that is to provide hospitality. That's good. And so Martha is serving in the story, and Mary is sitting. By the way, Women were not supposed to sit at the feet of rabbis. So Mary's doing what she's supposed to do, what she is expected to do, and Mary is violating common law. And, and so Martha is very upset, the scripture says, disturbed, distracted, with all the preparations. And I've seen this time and time again. When you're having a guest over, simple is not good enough. It's got to be the best. And there's nothing wrong with that desire to some extent, but Martha had that spirit. After all, this is Jesus. Should I not do my best for the master? <laughs> I mean, if we would stop the story halfway through, everyone would say Martha's the good one and Mary's the bad one, right? Every pastor would say, fill up my church with Martha's. Who'll do the work? And so now Martha is ticked because Mary's not helping and she says, Jesus, I'd love to hear the tonation on this one. Jesus, tell Mary to help out. Just sitting around, doing nothing. <laughs> How often do you give commands to Jesus? Answer this prayer. How come you're doing nothing? Jesus says, Martha, Martha, the name is doubled because of compassion. You don't get it, do you? You're concerned about many things. In fact, some translations have it. You're preparing too many things for the meal. Only one item is necessary. But I don't think that's the best translation. I think the NIV has it right on. Martha, you're concerned and distracted with many things. But Mary is focused on the one thing that is needful. In fact, Jesus says this, she has chosen what 
is better. Better than physical food is the spiritual food. When the disciples came to Jesus and he was talking to the woman at the well, should we get food for you? And Jesus said, no, I have food that you don't even know about. Who brought him a meal? Jesus said, my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. Mary was so absorbed as a disciple at the feet of Jesus that she didn't care about food. Now you have to go back a little further in Luke 10 to realize what this really means. Someone came to Jesus and said, what's the great commandment? Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbors yourself, right? And the very next story that Luke chooses is the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke 10, which answers the question, who's my neighbor? How do I love my neighbor? Love your neighbor like the Good Samaritan. But what about the most important aspect of the answer of Jesus? Love God with all of your heart. That story is seen not in the Good Samaritan, but in the story of Mary and Martha. One thing is needful. You need to know Jesus and follow Jesus. I guess that's two things, but really one. Come to him as your Savior and follow him as your Lord. But I'm too busy. You know, I'm too busy to study God's word. I'm really too busy to meet with the people of God, and it's so convenient to stay away. Now, some of you are staying away, and you need to for important health reasons. I get it. But I fear the day, whenever it is, when we can gather together and people say, nah, I got a busy day. It's really convenient just to stay home. It's too, I'm too busy to seriously pray. I'm too busy, busy to develop meaningful relationships with those who don't know Christ or, or those who do know Christ. What are you doing? I'm just a little here and there, puttering around, filling my time, standing by the rail. There was a man in a mental institution many years ago who was trying to sew two pieces of cloth together, but he did not knot the end of the thread. And so with every pull, the thread came through. But he kept doing it over and over again. It was harmless, but tragic. And what you may be doing may seem harmless, but it's tragic if you miss what is better. Mary has chosen the better thing. If we fail to do this, no matter how noble our life, it will end with tragedy and regret. But if we do this, follow our Lord and obey his word, no matter how obscure our life may be, we'll find eternal joy and hear from Jesus those great words, well done, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Once again, we should listen to that voice that comes from the greatest man who ever lived because it was God incarnate, the Lord Jesus, who said in Mark chapter 8, in verse 35, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But 
if you give up your life for my sake and the sake of the good news, you'll save it. If you follow me and give up whatever you want to do, you'll find out that what I want you to do is more fulfilling and more significant and will give you greater joy now and the ultimate joy and eternal life forevermore. So turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, to you be all glory and praise. Because in your wonderful plan of salvation, you sent your Son to be our sacrifice. And you sent your Son to be our Lord. He is the one who saves us from the penalty of our sin, and he is the one who clothes us with perfect righteousness. So we find in Jesus and Christ alone all that we need. The charge has been given, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. The command has been given by our superior officer, Take up your cross and follow me. And yet often we say we've neglected the command because we're too busy with the here and now. Focus our eyes on eternity, we pray, dear Lord. And in these few quiet moments, let's do business with God either to trust Christ as our Savior or to examine our busy lives and find out what we are missing, what primary concerns are neglected because we are so filled with secondary items. Help us, Holy Spirit, to assess our lives in this time of prayer. Let's pray.